When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger. People ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? And this show is dedicated to that idea, immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing and what we think about the future of that place as a visitor, as a passenger. The first season of The Passenger premieres February 27th. Subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I got to tell you that every day I need a cup of coffee in the morning. Oh, heck yeah, me too. Yeah. I I have a good friend who just wakes up and drinks uh, water with a squeeze of lemon in it. And I tried that one morning, and while it was semi-refreshing, I need my coffee. No, lemon doesn't propel me forward in my footsteps down the street. Yeah. Only coffee can do that. Yeah, and it gives me some, it gives me literally a reason to get out of bed. <laughs> I like it that much. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why an article over at Bitch Magazine caught my eye not too long ago. It was by Lisa Nicely. It's called The Slow-Roasted Sexism of Specialty Coffee. And I have to admit, when Kristen suggested we talk about gender and the coffee industry, I I drew a blank. She threw hot coffee in my face <laughs> and said, you're crazy. <laughs> uh, then I shuffled my papers and walked away. Um, yeah, no, I, I really didn't know that there was this whole, I don't want to say underbelly, that sounds like we're talking about something that's very seedy, but I had no idea that there was this aspect to this whole culture. Yeah, I had no idea either. I mean, I think you and I are both well aware of the specialty coffee mm-hmm. industry, um, but yeah, when, once you start digging into the gender, it gets really fascinating. So first, let's just talk a little bit about what we mean by specialty coffee. We're going to get into just coffee, coffee, but this really kicks off with a conversation about specialty coffee, which is really devoted to giving consumers a high quality coffee experience, which is not what I do every morning for myself. <laughs> Me neither. No, but it is experience, italicized experience. Yes. Um, but the, the people in this industry, the specialty coffee industry, really pay attention to every level of the coffee making process, the different bean varieties, the soil it's grown in, the correct way to roast it, the different flavor profiles and aromas, the acidity, the espresso dosage and the flawless service and presentation at last. And you might think that the history of specialty coffee just begins with Starbucks, but actually It was unheard of before 1974, and that was the year when a lady named Irma Knutson used the term for the first time in the tea and coffee trade journal. And essentially, specialty coffee 
denotes what at that time was a somewhat radical idea of how different geographic microclimates of where coffee is grown produces various flavor profiles. And so specialty coffee emerges as this brewing craft that really seeks to preserve the integrity and intensity of those different flavors. Mm. Yeah. And I, I would just like to note that my brother-in-law works in specialty coffee, and I enjoy going to him and my sister's house because I know I'm going to get amazing coffee. The only downside, Caroline, is because of this attention to detail, in the morning when I wake up and I want my cup of coffee immediately, I usually have to wait about half an hour because it's, you know, he meticulously weighs out the beans and does the special kind of drip coffee brewing technique that takes a lot longer. This is not your K cup, mm-hmm. pop it in. Don't even get him started on K cups. Oh no. Um, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, the, the, the final product is so rich and it's uh, very caffeinated and it's a very lively, experience drinking this but it's a it's a process i'm picturing you in a pharmaceutical company ad when you're talking about this coffee like you said lively and i'm just picturing you like bounding around like hooray it's coffee after i have a a cup of his coffee you are bounding around it is incredible but you just you have to wait for it it's it's slow does he use one of those like kimex beaker things yes oh yes fancy i don't have i don't have the patience i just want my coffee grounds that I get from whatever store, and I want to pour them in the filter in my little whatever brand it is, Coffee Mate or whatever, and I just want it to drip and brew. Mm-hmm. You know, I need it more. I need it faster. <laughs> exactly. Well, there are so many people who are invested in specialty coffee that it's a massive industry now. It's worth, in the U.S. alone, $30 billion a year. That's all mugs sold at Starbucks. That's all that money is. That's all Frappuccinos. <laughs> That's it. And so getting back to that bitch article, you might be thinking, well, where is the sexism in that? Well, Lisa nicely argues that as often happens in industries like this is reminiscent of our conversations about women in STEM, as things, including coffee, have become more specialized, you often see a masculinization of that industry. Once the profits start going up, and you you start developing different craft and specialty around it, more men come into the fold. And rather than coffee serving being something that, you know, waitresses are doing in diners, now you have baristas. Right. It's all about kind of social prestige being associated with it. And that leads to higher wages. And as this happens, it's harder for women to get in and then advance in the field once they're in it. And so a lot of this ties into wages, career advancement, or even something like coffee competitions. Yeah, and we're going to get into those contemporary gender issues with coffee. But first, we've got to talk about the gendered history of coffee and coffee houses because it's it's really fascinating. Yeah, and so exclusive. Yeah. So exclusive of women. But 
So um, let's go back, way back, to when coffee was first introduced. And it was pretty much entirely unknown before the middle of the 15th century, at which point it was expanding in the Red Sea Basin area. So that's like the Ottoman Empire. It, it, it spreads to the Ottoman Empire over the 16th century, it goes over to Venice. People in Venice are drinking it. Physicians are using it. Then we have Western scholars and botanists who start talking about this fancy new plant. Then physicians in the West start talking about it, too. And then the original hipsters come in. The uh, the English travelers like Sir Henry Blunt, who visited Turkey and realized that, hey, you know what? Not only are the Turks not so bad, but they have this incredible hot beverage. And it is called coffee and it's the best drink a man can drink and uh, we should note that a lot of this info is coming from uh, this book we found called the social life of coffee the emergence of the british coffee house by brian william cohen and cohen talks about how coffee houses really start developing into a, the central institution for the consumption of coffee and complementary exotic goods in britain in the 17th century Right. And why did that happen? It was because of those original hipsters. There was this group of Englishmen who called themselves the virtuosi. And what's key here about their their self-descriptor is that it's an Italian word for individuals who were interested in promoting the arts in antiquities. They were basically seeking to align themselves with this fascinating international world of elite cultural interests. They were curious about the outside world. They wanted to develop a body of knowledge about it and all of its fancy exoticisms and rarities. And some of them got to travel. Some of them didn't. But regardless, they wanted to get together and talk about all of those fancy things. And these virtuosi helped promote coffee as an excellent alternative to alcohol. Because it has those stimulant factors. You can get a buzz for sure off of coffee. Right. But the way people talk about it, it's so funny. They align it. They align it with booze. They align it with heroin and opium and all sorts of stuff. Like nobody seems to trust this like hot, dark beverage that can cause you to to quake in your boots. And it's funny. The thing that really, really struck me is that the way people back then, all the way in the 1600s, talked about coffee is the way people talk about coffee today. All sorts of people were saying, oh, it's terrible. How can you like that stuff? And yet how in love with it a lot of people are. They say that it's an acquired taste like tobacco. And Cowan even compares it to smoking pot. And he points out that it's almost like coffee was made to be a social thing. He says, quote, acquiring a taste for such products requires a process of socialization and habituation in which the novice user learns to make sense of and enjoy their psychoactive effects and their taste. And so, you know, just like you go to Starbucks or wherever, whatever local coffee house and sit down and sip your coffee. It was the same thing back in the day. Men were going to these coffee houses training themselves to enjoy it and suck it down so that they could have all of these political and philosophical discussions with each other. Yeah, because as the popularity of coffee is brewing in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, you also have the emergence of consumer society and public sphere of people being out and, like you said, gathering and talking about things and trading ideas and talking about current events. And the coffee house is such a prime example of that because you're going there, you're being seen out, you're purchasing something. It's a unique social space in which class and rank are temporarily ignored 
to the benefit of political and philosophical conversations, allowing those ideas to flourish. And walk into a coffee house today and you'll probably see a group of people. You'll see a lot of people on their MacBooks, like, you know, all on Twitter. But you'll also see one little cluster of people talking. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, speaking of that, I went into a coffee house during the snowpocalypse here in Atlanta, hoping to get a warm beverage and sit down in a corner. There was literally, literally not an open space anywhere because everybody had their freaking computers. Oh, yeah. And I looked around. I'm like, you people could do this at home. But technically, I could have done that at home, too. But it's part of that coffee house vibe. You want to be out around people. And so by 1720, the coffee house and coffee consumption is firmly entrenched in British society. But uh, even though a lot of people are drinking it by this point, it doesn't necessarily have the best reputation because, you know, some people compared it to, you know, tobacco, alcohol. It's an, an acquired taste. Not everybody got coffee. Yeah, and the people who thought they got coffee kind of got it wrong. They It was considered by a lot of people to be an anti-aphrodisiac that could not only render men impotent, but women barren, as opposed to chocolate, which hot chocolate was considered to be an aphrodisiac. So there's your bit of Valentine's trivia. But so anyway, I mean, the the scare tactics around coffee are kind of ridiculous. The virtuosi travel reports of indigenous women incapacitating their husbands with drugs before engaging in adultery all went back to coffee. They talk about sultans developing an aversion to women because of it and coffee houses in Turkey and Persia keeping male prostitutes. So coffee is like tied up in all of these fears about like homosexuality and adultery and basically sinful sex. But in England, that's actually seen as a bonus. These potentially uh, de-sexualizing qualities of coffee that they think is happening um, because they actually see coffee as something that helps preserve chastity. Drink it and you won't want to have sex. So huzzah. Well, so all of these assumptions and stereotypes start uh, attracting attention on their own. Uh, we get some mock petition pamphlets circulating that claim to represent women who were sick and tired of their men using, quote, that drying, enfeebling liquor. They said that men were visiting coffee houses too much, thereby losing their masculine sexual vigor, and that coffee drinkers were likely to be cuckled by dildos, and that this meant the English state was likely declining. Yeah, and all of this was happening leading up to that 1720 mark where, you know, you have the coffee house firmly entrenched in British society. And but one of those mock pamphlets was called uh this came out in 1674 and it was called The Women's Petition Against Coffee Representing to Public Consideration the Grand Inconveniences Accruing to Their Sex from the Excessive Use of That Drying and Feebling Liquor. <gasps> presented to the right honorable keepers of the Liberty of Venus by a well-willer. And apparently that last bit about the Liberty of Venus and a well-willer was an ironic reference to uh, licentious men and, and prostitutes. Right. And so nobody actually knows who wrote this pamphlet, whether it was a man or a woman, but everybody's pretty certain that it is satire. Of all of this, like, worry, worry going around about, you know, whether you were going to be impotent after you drank coffee. Yeah, it's a it's a little confusing. There's like uh, 
tandem coffee popularity and panic going on at the same time. But in terms of coffee houses and gender, while women were perfectly welcome to make plenty of tea and have their lady friends over to their drawing rooms, they were not very welcome in coffee houses, even though among men, as we mentioned, a coffee house was seen as a place where your your social rank was momentarily ignored, but your gender certainly would not be ignored. No, definitely. And it wasn't like they had an equivalent space to go to. Like you said, they it, they were expected to have tea at home. Women's coffee houses were generally an anomaly. And even their sheer presence, even if they were just the servers there or the proprietor, proprietors of the establishment, women being in the quote-unquote male coffee houses were seen as problems to overcome. They, they were seen as obstacles to their philosophical discussions, like the presence of breasts in a room will somehow prevent you from discussing matters of the day. Yeah. And if women were present in coffee houses, they might have been behind the bar. Uh, they might have been prostitutes um, or every now and then they might have been someone like Hester Penny, who was a successful single woman in the lace business, who actually spent a lot of time in British coffee houses. It was sort of how she networked for her business and but she was but she was such an exception to the yeah. rule. Oh yeah, big time. I mean, she did a lot of traveling, a lot of staying in rooms above coffee houses, above pubs, things like that. But and, you know, we should say too that this is largely focused on more urban, metropolitan coffee houses in London. Coffee houses in more rural areas were a lot more relaxed. They tended to serve as the favored locale for rest, recreation, and even matchmaking. Oh, and that's like today how one thing I like to do while I'm waiting for my coffee is look around to see whether or not you can spot like an OK Cupid date. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's always so obvious. For yeah. some reason, they, they never have coffee in front of them. They usually have an empty table and they're both leaning back a little bit in their chairs. And and both are nervously laughing. And usually I try to sit by them to eavesdrop because <laughs> I'm a total creep. Um, but the, the weird sort of womanly exclusion from coffee, these like strange gendered hangups that we had regarding coffee did not subside or disappear, I should say, in the 20th century. There's this strange bit of vintage advertising, like mid-century advertising that you see that's all focused on selling coffee based on like husbands being mean to their wives. Can yeah. you explain this better than I can? Well, Caroline? It was all based on fear. Like there are so many of these ads that show the woman being, you know, scolded essentially by her husband for burning the coffee or making it too weak or something. And that the husband would withhold his affection until she made the right cup of coffee. And then he would give her a kiss on the cheek or he would he would say like, oh, the girls down at the office can make a better cup than this. Well, and we should say that even up to this point, like in the 1940s and 50s, coffee is still very much considered a man's drink in Esquire, for instance, in 1949. They have a guide to making the perfect cup of coffee because, quote, it's a man's drink and the average woman to this day can't make a good cup of coffee. That's so weird. I mean, my my vision of this era is like the housewife brewing the coffee. Right. So it's like a, it's very much within the home sphere, within the woman's business at the home. And so it's just uh 
I don't know. Advertising. It's advertising. It's advertising. Yeah, I think my favorite slash least favorite tagline, advertise, coffee advertising tagline that I saw was from a 1960s commercial. I'm not sure which coffee company it was for, but the, it was from a frustrated husband saying to the camera, how could such a pretty wife make such bad coffee? Wah, wah, wah. Now, this might seem like a stretch, but... Scholars have looked into the what is called the gender coding of coffee. And even today, you still hear that 1949 Esquire piece echoed in terms of it being a man's drink. Because if you think about, say, the Starbucks menu, if you put them on some sort of uh, gender normative spectrum on the super masculine end, you're going to have an espresso. And on the super feminine end, you're going to have your no fat, skinny, extra whip, frappuccino, double caramel twist <laughs> with, I don't know, with Skittles in it or something. Skittles. Yeah, I love my Skittles frappuccino. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny and strange. And yet, unfortunately, it makes sense that we seem to align these, these drinks with gender. Well, cause it probably, I mean, we might think of espresso or black coffee or strong coffee as being this more manly drink because that still goes back to when it was becoming popular in England in the 1600s. When it was like, oh, this is an acquired taste. This is right. a thing that you have to, it's like scotch, you know, where, oh, well, you have to have a, a certain kind of strong palate to be able to withstand this. Right. And well, Julie writes, uh, in her book, Food, Culture and Society from 2007 talks about how, you know, you do have, like we said, you do have coffee making coming into the home where it does enter the, the wife's sphere to, to make it. But espresso never really made that leap. I mean, think about how expensive an espresso maker is to get into your home. Um, it's largely still like a specialty drink that you have to go to a coffee shop for. And so in that regard, she says it kind of held on to its masculine roots. Yeah, but she also notes how espresso beverages, and I would say just any coffee coffee beverages, served with milk and sugar are feminized. So basically the more milk the more feminine. And that's creating a weird association between women and lactation in my head. Um, but she says that it's not uncommon to hear specialty baristas mocking people who drink, say, a 16-ounce latte or a decaf mocha as those drinks are implicitly understood to be girly or sissy. And, and there was even another study that we found um, conducted by Aubrey Lindbergh in 2013, where she, it was sort of an observational thing. She worked at a coffee shop and she was just noting how men and women acted at uh, when they were ordering coffee and especially how like a single woman by herself versus with, a, say, a boyfriend or partner would act. And she found that when men by themselves would come up and say, order a cappuccino or one of the girlier kinds of drinks that they would be like, oh, well, they'd always kind of like get a little nervous be like, oh, I'll offer some qualifier. Like, yeah. well, I would just, I gotta, I guess I have a sweet tooth today. Yeah. They would always have to preface it like, hey, I'm not, I'm not a girly man. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm a man's man. I know I'm not supposed to drink, drink this. Right. But. And then, you know, yeah, she also pointed out trends that she noticed like, 
uh, women were a lot more indecisive. If they asked for, for suggestions from the staff, they would imme- the, the girl would immediately take the suggestion, whereas men or, or guys would, you know, walk up and know exactly what they wanted, you know. So this brings us up to today, though, and we still need to talk about this issue of gender within specialty coffee. Because speaking of baristas, let's hop behind the counter and see what Lisa Nicely in that bitch article is really getting at with her claim that there is a, as she puts it, slow roasted sexism of specialty coffee. So let's talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's rosewater collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them. So that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. Okay, the new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman have never been more hilarious as America's favorite moms turned gangsters, Beth, Ruby, and Annie. Already this season, there have been some big twists and breathtaking surprises. The fans love it, and the critics do, too. Variety calls good girls addictive and audacious. Entertainment Weekly says it's just what you need, and Rotten Tomatoes certifies good girls 100% fresh. So, if you've missed any of the new season, get yourself online and stream it now. And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. And now back to the podcast. So we've talked a lot about the gendering of coffee drinking, but what about the gendering of coffee making and serving? This is specifically a focus on baristas or brorista culture. Yeah, and I have a feeling that anyone working in a coffee house listening to this just cringed at the at brorista. But when you look into barista competitions, because yes, those are big things. There are things called Thursday night throwdowns that happen at a lot of uh, either like specialty coffee um, companies, like they'll open up their kitchens that for different baristas to come in and like practice their skills, or they might happen at different higher end coffee houses. Um, but when it get, gets into the competitive aspect of specialty coffee, because, yeah, that's now a thing. Specialty coffee is so big that there are now world barista championships. Actually, there's only one world barista championship. Uh, but these different competitions exist. And one thing Lisa Nicely at Bitch points out is that, well, it's usually just guys competing. 
Yeah, and the debate over that fact alone is pretty interesting because while there are a lot of people saying, you know, this is terrible, they're being very exclusionary, they're not letting women enter or they're not encouraging women or they're even discouraging women from participating, there are others on the flip side who are saying, you know, a lot of us don't even care. There's just as many men as women who don't give a hoot about these competitions. It's really about making good coffee and and we don't care. So what? Yeah, and, and speaking of so what, people listening who are not immersed in coffee culture might be thinking, well, who cares about barista competitions, period. I mean, those are the kinds of accolades that will get you good jobs yeah. in this industry. So that it absolutely does make a difference. Um, but for instance, with the, the World Barista Championship, since the year 2000, the year 2000, all the winners have been guys. However, if you look at the U.S. Barista Championship, it has had four female winners. In fact, one woman, uh, Heather Perry, won twice in a row, I think, and she came in second in 2007 at the World Barista Championship. So there are definitely women who are slinging coffees at these really intense competitions. I've seen part of one, and yeah, whew, wow. And when a lot of these conversations come up, there are um, some baristas out there who are saying, you know what, can we just let sleeping dogs lie? There was one woman who wrote a column in response to this uh, this discussion, basically saying, I don't even want you to think about my gender for whatever reason. I want to be taken seriously as a barista, as someone who makes quality coffee. I don't want you to think of me differently, either because of or despite my gender. Yeah, I mean, and this also came up uh, in a cover story for Barista Magazine. Yes, that exists. Uh, it was a cover story from 2012 called Coffee Women of the Pacific Northwest. And I will say that the photo essay that went along with it did look like something out of Portlandia. It was <laughs> yeah. lovely women in fields with coffee paraphernalia draped in gorgeous blankets. Um, so it's kind of funny. But um, one of them, Layla Gambari, said... Women have to be really good to get to that level, talking about the competition level. And she says the truth is that not a lot of women are doing this. So that does need to be pointed out. But again, throughout their conversation, too, it was clear that they didn't want to be seen, these women who are being highlighted in the magazine, as just a niche. They didn't want to be women in coffee. They're at the top of their game professionally. They're, you know, they want to just be seen as, you know, incredible coffee experts right yeah i mean this i I, this is stuff that i never would have thought of yeah would have thought about that that was even an issue looking back at at the history of um kind of sexism and and coffee is is crazy well you i mean you hear anecdotally too from if you go into more of the lower rungs of coffee culture away from the competition you do hear from women who are working behind counters mm-hmm. who have noticed that there is a difference. And I think it's more of a service industry thing where you, you know, customers walk up and they see a male barista behind the counter and they assume that he's more of a specialty guy who knows he's a barista, in other words, whereas women are treated more as just just servers or just waitresses. They're. You know, it's kind of the the feminization of of lower level service industry work, right? And a lot of people have written pieces about just that horrible interaction, customer 
a barista or customer server interaction um, where people do kind of make assumptions about women and men making the coffee and, and basically treating women like, oh, you're so cute. You made a cup of coffee. Good job. You know, or or just commenting on their looks, just being generally inappropriate toward women. I wonder if that this is totally tangential and I have no academic citation for this, but I wonder if that wasn't uh, kind of <laughs> perpetuated by Rachel and friends because, you know, she works at the coffee shop, but she just sort of serves as like a pretty face and she never knows how to make the coffee. It's like that <laughs> stereotype that like women in coffee shops are just Rachel's huh. just to be there. Interesting. I don't know. I didn't watch enough friends to even think about that, but you might have a point. An old roommate of mine had the entire box set of every oh single God. episode, and there was a period when we had no cable, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, but also what we haven't touched on, you know, moving away from moving outside the walls of the coffee shop to the actual fields, mountains, areas geographically where this coffee is grown and who is doing the growing because while we do have a discussion going on in this country about male versus female man versus woman making the coffee who's getting more money the industry being professionalized um you have even greater disparities when it comes to the farmers themselves yeah i feel like almost the most important thing globally speaking to pay attention to in this conversation of gender and coffee is the issue of sourcing, really paying attention to where your coffee comes from. And this is also where paying attention to buying fair trade makes a big difference because uh, this is over at the fair trade blog. Uh, they mentioned that female ownership of coffee bushes is an entrenched taboo because in a lot of the countries where our coffee comes from, they live in more patriarchal societies where men are absolutely the heads of household. And even though women and children might be doing a majority of the work in terms of planting and cultivating and harvesting the coffee beans or the coffee berries, um, they don't see any of the profits from it. Right. And so the male head of household kind of has say over how that money is spent. Yeah, The Guardian, in fact, estimates that that women tend to do 60 to 80 percent of the productive work. And so there are lots of initiatives underway through fair trade organizations. Um, You also have the National Union of Coffee Agribusiness and Farm Enterprises, for instance, that are really starting to go into these communities and educate uh, the men about the importance of sharing the wealth in a way and um, kind of making it more of an equal gender, equal process, but also empowering women with their own money and land mm-hmm. and control over wealth. Because right. traditionally in developing countries, when women control the wealth in a household, it is spent more wisely. Absolutely. And there are groups that are forming, too, that want to buy specifically from female farmers with some of the proceeds going to fund things like mobile cervical cancer screening buses, things like that, or even purchasing new efficient stoves so smoke doesn't fill the home, that improves general health, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's, I'd never thought about this before at all. I mean, and it's, again, paying attention to where your food and drink comes from. Um, but there are suggestions, too, that when women grow the coffee and are given that control over it, the product is better. You have a greater harvest. I mean, because if they're in there already doing 60 to 80 percent of the work, they know how to grow that coffee. Um, so it's it's interesting to sort of take 
more of a global perspective of this conversation away from just what's going on at your local coffee haunt. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of, of the, of the coffee spots that I go to, what kind of gendered patterns I've noticed. I mean, there definitely is the drink divide where you are more likely to see women drinking their, I mean, I love a soy latte. Not gonna lie. Um, but I also love a black coffee. Yeah. I mostly only ever drink just a black coffee. Mm-hmm. Rarely would I ever drink an espresso because, but that's more, I like to savor it. I, uh, I want to drink it longer. I don't want it to go away so fast. Yeah. I want to enjoy a hot beverage. Yeah. Yeah. I remember growing up, it was always a, a joke and I never really thought about it in my household because my mom drinks exclusively black coffee, whereas my dad requires sugar mm-hmm. and milk. And it was always kind of like if he ever accidentally drank her coffee, he was like, oh, no, yours is so strong. And she'd be like, well, I guess even though I'm a lady, I like my coffee strong. And we would all laugh. I know my mom, who's a flight attendant, likes to tell jokes about when you're going down the aisle with your beverage cart, you know, saying coffee, tea or me. So in my mind, yeah, like coffee service has been intertwined with <laughs> Well, service. Yeah. 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 And Caroline, we could keep talking about this stuff. I feel like we haven't even touched on everything, but um, <laughs> for the sake of our listeners' ears, we're going to wrap it up now. And we want to hear from any baristas listening. Does this ring a bell at all? I will say that when I mentioned to my brother-in-law, who works for a specialty coffee company, that I'm not going to name just in case that would be weird for him, um, but they do make delicious coffee. Uh, when, when I told him that we were doing a podcast on gender and sexism and specialty coffee, he n- knew what I was talking about. Hmm. So, okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, (laughs) then I I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's rosewater collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them. So that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock. He constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Want to hear from you all? What do you think? MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send us your letters, and you can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. Or send us a message on Facebook. And we got a couple of messages to share with you right now about our episode on Can Birth Control Kill You? So I've got one here from Jen, and she writes, 
Hi, ladies. Thank you, all caps, so much for your big picture look at the recent Vanity Fair article, Can Birth Control Kill You? I'm an OBGYN physician at the Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, where the lead study you quoted was conducted, and have had to field so many questions from patients in response to this recent, very one-sided article. I always counsel patients requesting birth control on the risks and benefits, including VTE, as is my responsibility as a physician. That being said, I also make sure to tell them that their risk of blood clots is dramatically higher with pregnancy, which is the main reason women start birth control to begin with. You mentioned this briefly at the end of the podcast, but to put things in perspective, while 2 out of 10,000 women on no birth control and 7 out of 10,000 women on the NuvaRing will develop a blood clot, 1 in 500 to 2,000 women who are pregnant will develop blood clots. All in all, it is much safer to be on the NuvaRing than it is to be pregnant, especially in that cohort of women with higher risk factors. I love listening to your podcast and love that you have given so much even-sided attention to important topics such as this. So thanks, Jen. Well, Kristen, I hope the letter you just read makes our next listener who wrote in feel a little bit better. This is a letter from Lacey who says, I'm currently using the NuvaRing. I've been on it for several years now, and it's the only birth control that I've ever liked. And I've tried Depo-Provera and the patch, which was awful, and oral birth control. Your episode made me nervous, but I did want to say with regards to asking the doctor about birth control, my gyno has always told me that NuvaRing is the safest form of birth control because it's the lowest dose of estrogen, which always made me feel so good. Oh, yay, I love this birth control, and it's good for me. Great. So it's alarming to hear the opposite. But thank you for the podcast. This type of information is so important. So thank you for writing in, Lacey. And again, I hope you your mind is put a little bit at ease from the doctor who wrote in that, that Kristen, uh, Kristen read her letter. Um, again, everybody out there, just make sure you educate yourself and talk to your doctor. Exactly. And uh, educate us. Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send us your letters. And if you want to connect to us on social, there are so many options you should head on over to find all of them as well as all of our podcast blogs and videos at the internet home of Stuff Mom Never Told You. That's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.